Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, to the 15th chapter, and in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 33. It's page 722 in our church Bibles. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And if you are visiting, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse for quite some time, and I can honestly say we're ending unintentionally. This wasn't by design. I just kind of went week by week, and Christmas and different things came and went, and so I think it's ironic, and I'm glad to be able to be here, and we're going to be able to finish up, Mark, um, as we enter into the Easter season. Verse 33 At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those standing near heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. If you would, please, let's bow together. Excuse me. Father, we um, ask that you, by your Spirit, would teach us from this text this morning, and that in that exercise you would enable us to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly, to love him more deeply, and to follow him more honestly and more closely. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you are aware that we find ourselves on the first day of what traditionally has been known as Holy Week. And so, beginning today and moving through to next Sunday, it has been customary for many Christians to pay close attention to the last week of Jesus' earthly life as recorded for us in the four Gospels. And when we do, I I think that together we've been learning this in Mark's gospel, that under the providence of God, all of the gospel writers give an incredible amount of space to the events of the final week of Jesus' life, and particularly the, the final 24 hours. So as a student of the Bible and as a teacher of the Bible, that's really, really important to me. And so... These 24 hours, these final 24 hours, um, we could say with absolute certainty has changed the course of all human history. And here in these verses we've just read, beginning in verse 33, we, we find ourselves at the pivotal event of all human history. 
And when I say that, it seems like it would be good to think about that a bit, knowing that we each will have a starting date and we will each have an ending date as well, that we are not perpetual, if you would, that we only have so much time left and none of us know how long that time is. So there's going to be a last time for everything. There'll be a last journey, a last holiday. There'll be a last kiss. And someone or ourselves will breathe our last and be dead. And we read history and we know that nations come and, and, and people and trends, they come and they go. That the Book of Common Prayer says, in the midst of life we are in death. That is true. And so no one can escape that reality. So at the heart of Christianity, the thing which, which runs through everything in the life of his church and his people and how we are to understand ourselves and how we are to understand others, whether they're in Christ or not, and, and the framework we live out our lives in, at the very heart of that is the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That here, as we read on a hillside outside the walls of Jerusalem, the, the vast majority of the world at that time not having an inkling what is taking place, Mark is telling us very plainly that the sinless Son of God is putting away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And that is, by the way, that's what is preached in the book of Acts. And that is what is being explained in the epistles. And every human life, everything about it, every word said, every decision made, all of human life must pass through the cross. And so for a moment, we will just rehearse what we learned of last time, the, the blasphemy which was spoke of. If your Bible's open, you'll see this in verse 16. All the deceit that Jesus is confronted with, the brutality. Verse 20, 31, excuse me, the mockery. Verse 32, <clears throat> those insults of a die, on a dying man. The effect is such that he's just a bloody blob of a man. He's more subhuman than he is human. Everything about this then is intended to show Jesus is scorned and he's hated and he's ridiculed as the crowds and, and the religious authorities mock the very notion that he is any kind of king at all. In fact, you could say it like this. The wrath of man is being poured out on Christ in those verses that we talked through last time. And their irreverence is so great, it is unmatched and unequaled in history that you see the purity of Jesus and you see the horror of the crowds, a person could justifiably ask, where is God? It's his son. His son is sinless. He's guiltless. He's perfect. And they tell me God is good and they tell me God is love and, and so they tell me that he is all powerful. So where is God? I mean, shouldn't God have consumed the blasphemers and stopped the ridicule and, and just put a halt to the death of his son? Shouldn't he have immediately demolished those blasphemers and protected his son? A person could say, you know, I've read a bit of the Old Testament. He does that kind of thing, often at the last minute. This was the last minute. And you could say, well, Joe, you've been telling us that we need to see ourselves in the crowds and the Sanhedrin and the disciples and Peter and the soldiers and so on, that their reaction to Jesus is representative of our reaction to Jesus by nature, and you've been saying that every time um, we sin, we're showing a reverence and we're blaspheming and we're mocking Jesus. So yeah, I deserve to perish. I get all that. I deserve all that. But Jesus didn't. So shouldn't God have stopped this? 
Well, when we read our Bibles, we find that the answer to that good question is no. God does not stop it. He doesn't, if you like, come down to destroy the blasphemers, nor does God come down to protect his son. Why? Well, one reason he's not coming down is something that we acknowledged last Sunday because it was God's will that he not come down. Isaiah 53.10, that it was the Lord's will to, to, if you would, crush him, Jesus, and to cause him, Jesus, to suffer. It was the will of God that his son be treated in this manner and be killed in this way. Why? Well, if you're a Christian, I think you know why. Because of our sin. That Jesus might be the one sacrifice for sin that could put it away forever. That he might die in the place of sinners. He might bear the curse and bear the punishment for us to show us every one of our sins. Listen carefully. Every one of our sins needs a substitute if they are to be forgiven. Because while God does forgive sin, he only forgives them for Jesus' sake. He only forgives them in light of the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, which means if there is no Jesus, there can be no true, meaningful forgiveness. So yeah, we forgive each other. But since, well, at least we should, but since every, every sin is committed against others, is also committed against God, Forgiving each other is really nice. But if there is no Jesus, it's not enough. So God did not come down either to destroy the blasphemers and God didn't come down to protect his son. Some of you remember when we were in Mark 8 and around verse 31, we said what, the, what theologians called the divine must. This is Jesus, verse 31. The son of man must die. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected uh, by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and three days later rise again. You get that? He must die. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. Uh, Not just die, but he must be killed. Why is that true? Well, it's true in part because apparently I must sin. So God did not come down to punish the tormentors. He did not come down to protect his son. And if you were listening to the reading of verse 34, you might say, well, I I just read it, and God never came down at all because Jesus said, verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? However, here's the question. Is that an indication that God was not there? So God was not there to punish the blasphemer. He wasn't there to protect his son. Therefore, you read verse 34 and conclude God was not there at all. But again, the question is, is that an indication that God was not there? Well, the answer to that question is really important. He was there. In that moment in which Jesus said he was feeling the absence of God, God was there. And God was there in a way that you may not suspect. Because what we're going to learn this morning, it was there God was there not giving him his son comfort, but God was there pouring out his wrath on our sins on his son. Now, I hope you hear that. Okay, so last week, the wrath of man on God's son. This week, now at the cross, the wrath of God on sin still on his son. And in each case, you find Jesus Christ absorbing all that hostility at the cross. So let's try to understand it. We only have two points. We're going to spend all of our time in the first and a nanosecond on the second. Savior, centurion. First, verse 33. You see it there if your Bible's open. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth. 
Now, the sixth hour would have been noon as the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. Six hours from 6 a.m. would be noon. The ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. So from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness. Now, by noon, Christ would have already said three things at the cross. First, he would have asked his father to forgive the mocking, insulting crowds. Absolutely beautiful, right? They don't know what they're doing. You could say that that was probably what gave light to the thief on the cross, that forgiveness was still available even as he was hanging there. He did, he asked, he did, and praise God, he received what he needed. The second thing Jesus said from the cross is to John the Apostle. Remember, he said, behold your mother, indicating that John was going to have to care for Mary since Jesus could no longer do that in that way and since his brothers at the time were unbelievers. The third thing he said was to the repentant thief, said, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now just put that together. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. Forgive them. Help her. Paradise is yours. That is incomparable. I mean, who does that? This is a man who has not one speck of self-interest at all. And he's looking after the interest of others. And then Mark writes, noon comes. And noon, this time of year, held the brightest light of the day. And it's exactly at that moment, that moment of brightness, that darkness breaks into the world until 3 p.m. Now, what's going on here? Is it an eclipse? Is this something that Satan did? Well, if you read your Old Testament, God is often spoken of as, as light. Right? And he's also spoken of as darkness. And darkness, this is important, represents divine judgment. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pity for that day. This is Joel chapter 1 verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Okay, what will it be like? Chapter 2 verse 10. The earth will quake. The heavens will tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Darkness. Amos chapter 5 verse 20. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? So there are other passages. Nevertheless, Darkness in the Old Testament serves to symbolize divine fury or a righteous wrath being unleashed by none other than God. Darkness in it is to be understood as the ultimate form of God's presence in God's judgment. So you, if you're taking notes, I'd write, darkness is pain from God. So with that understanding of darkness, in verse 33, we could say, from noon to 3 o'clock, God was unleashing the full extent of everlasting punishment on sin. And he was unleashing it all on his son. Wrath, Isaiah 13, 9. Fierce, justifiable anger. So I want you to think with me. Just as God is the true power behind hell's eternal punishment. The darkness of hell, the pain of hell, it's all there per God for those who reject Jesus Christ. God is the true power behind the darkness of Calvary because here God unleashes literally hell on His Son for us on account of our sins. 
So whatever makes hell, hell, Jesus is experiencing fully, completely in those hours. So what is happening here is what Jesus in the garden said he didn't want any part of. Remember that? Remember he prayed and his first part of his prayer was like, I'm so nervous and I'm so anxious about this. And he was resistant to the cross. And for a moment he said, let this cup pass. I don't want this. I don't want this. All of what Jesus said he didn't want, but said to the Father, your will be done, is being poured out on Jesus in these three hours. In those three hours of darkness on the cross, God unleashed full hell on his Son. So sometimes you read this and you think, well, the darkness might have frightened some of the people around Jesus in some kind of superstitious way. Darkness does that. Who knows? And the darkness might have made an unkept reader of the gospel think, oh good, so, so God's given a little bit of payback to the people. You know, kind of scare them a little bit because they were so terrible to Jesus. Untrue. Both wrong. Darkness was towards the sun. In those three hours of this we can be sure, Jesus suffered the eternal punishment of hell for all his people. He bore all the eternal punishment together in those final hours of his life. So someone might say this. Okay, look, I don't believe there's a hell. And if there is, let's just run the numbers, all right? If the sinner in the eternal punishment of hell can never pay the price of sin, which is why hell is eternal, how could Jesus in three hours receive the full eternal wrath for all sinners who become believers? It's a good question. Here's the answer. Jesus could receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath because he is an infinite and eternal person. Consequently, his capacity for everything is limitless and eternal, including suffering divine wrath for sin. Jesus is paying the eternal life sentence of death on sin by absorbing the wrath of God in a moment in time. That's the mystery. Until he dies. And when he dies, it is finished. There is no more wrath from God on the believer's sin ever. Now, now you wrap your head around that one. Take a little bit of pity on me, but marvel at your God. Jesus drinks the cup of God's fixed wrath on our sin until there is no more. The darkness then, listen carefully, is not the absence of God's presence. It's not the presence of Satan. And it's not God trying to scare the bejeebas out of the crowds. The darkness is the presence of God in painful judgment on his son. It is God's maximum judgment, full vengeance, and full fury on sin on Jesus. Now think it through. You could say it's like this. It's the infinite wrath of God moved by the infinite righteousness of God and the infinite love of God for us in turn discharging infinite punishment on the infinite Son of God who alone, alone and did absorb all the tortures of hell's justifiable punishment on our sin in these final hours of his life. This just comes to mind. You watch a movie and you see one man pulverizing another and it just goes and goes and goes and goes and then it stops. 
Jesus is being pulverized by God. Now, can I just say this? Doesn't, doesn't this seem, let's just say it like this. Doesn't this make all our life's problems a lot smaller now? And if you're there and you ever think, you know, God doesn't love me because, because they have more than me or because they're this and I'm not and I don't have this and whatever. Can you see how that is such a lie now? It's such a lie. And some of you might be thinking, well, at least it was only for three hours. Okay, I'm with you. All right. But this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking eternal punishment on the eternal son, yet captured in time with God not holding back anything at all in his wrath. You know what else I'm thinking? I'm thinking Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, right? How searchable his judgments, his paths, his plans beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor, right? For from God and through God and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. In those three hours, Jesus, for us, bore in his body our sins. He was made sin for us. He took the curse for us. And at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., you see it there, verse 34, it begins to end. And there Mark records for us the fourth statement of our Lord. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's Aramaic. It's a language that Jesus spoke. So it's not Hebrew. It's not Greek. It's Aramaic. Translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, this is the first thing he said when, if you like, the clock struck three. And before verse 37, look at your Bibles, please. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, how are we to understand this? Okay, right? Darkness comes. In that darkness is maximum punishment on Jesus from God. It ends, and as it ends, verse 34, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, loud cry, last breath. Now, didn't we just say God was there, right? God was there, but Jesus, verse 34, seems to be saying something else. How are we to understand that? Let's try. The word forsaken in the Greek language has this idea of being left in a condition of lack, to be without, hence to feel forsaken, to feel helpless, knowingly left behind uh, with no help at all in the dire circumstances. So, this is a little difficult for me to understand because you have eternity and time kind of going in and out here. But this is what I can tell you. It seems to me, if you follow the flow of Mark's gospel, remember there's four gospels, four different perspectives on, on the life of Jesus. If you follow the flow, Christ is saying in all that is taking place, he knew the darkness was God. That was sin's punishment. He felt the full of wrath of God. That was part of sin's pain. And yet, in all of that, what he never has been without, he now experientially is aware that he's without. Verse 34. He is without the comfort of God. He has been abandoned by God. And he feels it. It's hard to give like a, a good example, but the first thing that I came to mind when I thought of this is, is <laughs> the chances of my wife and I dying at the same time are pretty minimal. And if she goes first, which I hope I go first, but if she goes first, 
Well, I don't know what's the right way to say that. But anyway, sorry. (laughs) On both sides, I'm going to get it. But anyway, if she goes first, I'm going to be without her forever. Do you know what that does to a man? Jesus, for the first time in his earthly life, no comfort at all. He just got pulverized by God. A moment, maybe some pity, maybe some help. None. None. So after the wrath of God is being exhausted, God in full presence, in full vengeance has poured it out. The whole cup has been consumed by Jesus and the darkness is leaving. But in that moment, so is God. Hence, Jesus says in one extremely short moment in time, remember time and eternity have been interwoven here. Why God? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Do you know how you hear that slogan, why do bad things happen to good people? This is the way you should understand that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once. And it happened to Christ. And he volunteered for it. And so Jesus seems to be knowingly, experientially aware of his separation from God. Hell in time at the end or soon after because we're dealing again with infinite and eternal. Again, Jesus knew who was exploding the judgment on him. It was God. He knew who was behind the darkness, God. And just for that moment in time when he might have expected, at least on the human level, some comfort, some compassion. Some kind of fellowship in the unimaginable, incomprehensible exhaustion of suffering hell. In that moment, he says what he knows. It's what we read this morning, Psalm 22, 1. Where is God? Where is God? So again, he knows God is in the punishment. But in a phrase, he's saying, why are you not here, God, giving comfort? That's hell. Now, we say something like that. We say, God, where are you? And we know he's there. We have sorrow. We have fear. And it seems like God's there. We know he's there. Here he is not there. And loved ones, that serves as a very, very, very important reminder to us that hell is the full fury of God's personal punishment. We understand that. But hell, listen, is also the lack of God's comfort. In other words, God will never for all eternity comfort anyone in hell. So it seems this is Jesus giving a, pre, giving a, a preview experientially of what hell is. Hell. God's punishment without comfort forever. Hell. God's punishment in the darkness. Hell. God's punishment without compassion. Hell. God's punishment without sympathy. Hell. God's punishment without relief. It will never end. This is hell. This is real. George Whitfield, an evangelist from an earlier generation, speaking about hell's torment and pain and suffering, he says, the eternal wrath of God in hell will be like millions and millions of days. Where at the end, people will realize they are no closer to the end of eternity than they were when they began. You can't forget that. 
hell is one of the primary motivators for evangelism, isn't it? I mean, we're not personally responsible for people's reaction to the gospel. But we are personally responsible to tell people about the gospel. And therefore, what I'm saying is on the cross, Jesus suffers all of which makes hell, hell. The perpetual fury of God's wrath and all the absence of God's comfort. The Apostles' Creed has that line, he descended into hell, and there's all kinds of different ways people actually think what that means, but here, it's at least what we've said. The perpetual fury of God's wrath, Jesus experienced. The absence of God's comfort, Jesus experienced. And by the way, you see verse 34, my God, my God, when Jesus says that, this is the first time in the whole of the New Testament where Jesus talks to God, but he doesn't refer to him as Father. Makes sense. Every time he spoke about God, he called God Father, not this time. And also this kind of double expression that, my God, my God, that's a Jewish idiom uh, done to express affection to the person you're addressing. So he's crying out to affection, not as God the Father, but just God, help me. And he receives no comfort. You mean like hell? Yeah, like hell. So verse 37 tells us a loud cry. And John's gospel tells us that part of that cry was Jesus declaring, it is finished, right? Tetelestai, it's accomplished. Mission is accomplished. But this is what I want you to consider. Mark's cry here, at least in this context, reads more like a cry of sorrow and not a cry of victory, at least in the humanity of Jesus. There's eight Greek words for the word cry. The word that Mark chooses is the most neutral, which means it's flexible to fit the context. So as you read through it, the darkness, the suffering, the pain, no comfort at all, where are you, God? And then a loud cry. John's gospel, a cry of victory. I get that. Mark's gospel, maybe it's just a cry. In fact, read Matthew's gospel. It is like a scream. A scream. Father, where, where are you? Well, because of my sin, the Father wasn't there. Jesus experienced hell, for you and I would not have to. So, so don't ever let the love of God swallow up the wrath of God, nor the justice of God. And don't think God will forgive people's sin without the substitute of Jesus. That kind of God is unreal, and he is an idol. I want you to listen carefully. And if you would, would you just think about this statement for the whole of the day? Atonement. Jesus Christ satisfying the wrath of God on sin by his suffering and death on the cross. Atonement is needed for everything that has to do with us and God and us and each other. I'm going to say it again. Atonement. Some sacrifice for sin is needed for everything that has to do with us and God and us and each other. Everything. Our whole life. Every sermon. Every prayer. Every service. If there is no atonement, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just religious hoo-ha. So think with me. Even though we are not to live to please ourselves as if we belong to ourselves, and even though as Christians we're to give up the right to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, we let God in his word tell us what is right and wrong, and even though we must forgive others, and we must love others, even though that is all true, it is equally true that on many occasions we don't. 
And it may be a few times, and it may be a billion times. Right now, it doesn't matter. It's all sin. And only Jesus can atone for sin, which means the only work of righteousness which can justify the sinner and appease God's wrath is the work of Christ on the cross and his mighty resurrection. I'm going to say that again. The only work of righteousness which can serve to justify the sinner, satisfy God's wrath, his anger on sin, is only the work of Christ on the cross and his mighty resurrection. That tells me that the only difference between, if you would, them and us is Jesus. Period. Verse 35. You see it there. Apparently the darkness didn't frighten everyone away, did it? You hear the words of Jesus. They hear his words in the common tongue, as we said, in Aramaic, and, and think Jesus is saying something that he's not. And at this time, there was this religious, superstitious belief that Elijah was some kind of patron saint of the suffering. And in light of that, someone um, wants to take advantage of that. He offers Jesus this cup of uh, not medicine to kill the pain, but a kind of a sponge filled with wine vinegar to, to quench his thirst. Wine vinegar was an inexpensive drink, but it was a very efficient um, thirst quencher, better than water. So this could have been an act of cruelty to kind of like prolong the suffering and maybe kind of meant to satisfy some superstitious ingling. Will Elijah actually come down? Or maybe there was some pity and so let's give Jesus some drink and Elijah will come down and Jesus will be able to get some help because apparently God's not helping him. Whatever it was, the drink comes, Elijah does not appear and with a shout, which would be admittedly a very unusual way for a crucified man to die, right? They die this slow uh, death by lack of oxygen. He still cries out, and then he dies. And so what I want to tell you, and this is so beautiful to me, that at the weakest moment of his life, chosen by Christ himself, why do I say that? John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one has the authority to take my life from me. I lay it down by my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This commandment I received from God. In other words, I will name the time of my death. My father said I could. Jesus names it. In this moment of absolute weakness, verse 37, he does. In verse 38, all of heaven just breaks loose. Right? The curtain of the temple torn in two, top to bottom. There was a dozen curtains in the temples. This, this was probably the most important curtain which separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. If that's his goobly gawk, if you don't know the story. In other words, this curtain symbolized the separation from a holy God and sinful men and women. It was thick, it was tall, and once a year at that time, the best they could do is the high priest could enter it, but only with a whole lot of rigorous, required external religious uh, sanctification rites, a whole lot of prep, if you would. And he could only do it once a year, and he had to get in quick, and he had to get out quick. But at the new covenant, at that moment, the moment that Jesus died, that covenant was ratified. He paid the full punishment, the full penalty justly for all who believe. And there is no more curtain now. And the ironic thing is he dies at 3 p.m. 
And at that time, 3 p.m. precisely was the moment when the priest would begin to slaughter the tens of thousands of Passover lambs so that people could have Passover meal symbolizing the angel of death passing over God's people, right? At that very hour, when they were doing all that stuff, the Passover lamb himself, Jesus Christ, was slain by God and all their sacrifices from then on were pointless. The Old Testament abolished. The temple invalid. The priesthood, that priesthood voided. All the sacrifices pointless because the only true and saving sacrifice had been offered. So when the veil split from top to bottom, it was a God thing, of course, and not a man thing. It was God, if you would, putting the exclamation point on the death of his son. And what was said was said that the way to God, the way to to fellowship with God and the presence of God was now wide open for anyone only on account of Jesus. Jesus, if you would, is all you need to get to God. Now I want you to think with me. What does the death of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplish? Well, first of all, it opens the way. It ended the priesthood. It ended the high priesthood. It ended the Levitical priesthood. It ended the sacrificial system. It ended the holy of holies and the holy place. All that means nothing. It eliminates all the symbols and ceremonies and brings the reality of salvation to everyone who chooses to enter. So the whole system is at that moment null and void. Just bear with me for a minute. All the the bells and whistles of Old Testament worship Make you feel God. That smell, oh, there's God. That light, there's God. All useless. Useless. Jesus, death, it is so good between me and God. Jesus, death, resurrection, it is a beautiful relationship between me and God. And I don't have to jump through hoops. I don't have to do some religious hoo-ha. I don't have to fast for like a thousand days or whatever. It is right, right now, because of Jesus. And isn't it funny? Curtain, everybody has access. Who's the first person, at least on some level, who has access? Verse 39, the centurion. By golly, a Gentile. He hears the cry of Jesus. He sees him dead. And what does he say? He says something a Christian would say. Son of God. Surely, he was the son of God. All the religious Jews, all the religious disciples, all the crowds, no, 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 a Roman, a soldier, a Gentile. Yes, yes, yes. Now, there's more to say. We're going to finish this up, Lord willing, on Good Friday. But this is what you need to know. God was there at the cross. God was there in the darkness God was there in the pain. He was pouring out wrath on his son. He was denying his son comfort. He was denying his son his presence. He was ending the old covenant. He was beginning the new. And God is here right now showing us, listen carefully. This is what hell is. And this is what sin cost. No wonder Thomas Chalmers said, to preach Christ is the only effective way of preaching morality. 
That's what my sin cost. It's got to mean something to me. It won't stop me from permanently sinning. I understand that. But maybe it'll put the brakes on a little more. And maybe because hell is eternal and it's real and it's terrible, maybe I'll tell more people about it. So I can tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for your attention. Father, we want to thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ became what he was not so we could become what he is. He absorbed hell. It's so easy to say. But it comes at a great cost for Jesus. Came at a great cost for Jesus. He absorbed hell so we could have heaven. Father, please build your kingdom of grace in us and May we be thankful, more careful. May we bear witness bravely to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit in the public square. And when the time comes, when we breathe our last, please receive us graciously for the sake of Jesus alone. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, but only in Christ. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'm going to hang around here if you have any questions.